0: Hello, I'm Rick Springfield, and you're listening to Your Morning Coffee, the podcast. Weekly music news for the new music business. From music business worldwide, Goldman Sachs says, the global music industry is going to be worth
1: even more than we thought. From Motive Unknown, this labels-are-bad-and-unnecessary narrative is BS. It needs to stop. And from Tedium, gaming the billboard charts. Well,
0: well, well. So much to talk about, Jay. So much to to cover. We are looking forward to it. We are glad you are here. So let's get started because here we go.
1: Stand by for transmission. This
0: is London Coffee. Wake up! The revolution
1: is at hand! Your morning coffee is on the air. On the air. On the air. On the air. On the air.
0: SJ, a topic. Well, first of all, Rick Springfield. We just heard Rick lead us in. Yeah,
1: that was nice from uh, Rick Springfield. Um, for those that don't know, it's a 40th anniversary of Working Class Dog, Gosh. that amazing album that catapulted him to stardom. And over the pandemic, you know, people weren't touring. So the band hadn't seen each other, gosh, it must have been close to a year, and Rick invited them, as as we were coming out of lockdown, invited them to his house. They cleared out all the furniture in the front room, and the band set up with backup singers a whole bit, and they played the album start to finish live in his living room and so that hit that was released Friday it's Working Class Dog 40th Anniversary uh, Anniversary Live Edition um, It and it's just joyful there's a DVD that uh, comes with it of that and you can just see them you know, they love each other so much and to see them kind of you know come back together and play that so thank you rick for the uh the intro this week and for those that uh, if you're a fan of rick check out uh working class dog 40th uh anniversary yeah i
0: can't believe it's been 40 years my god yeah. where does the time go <laughs>
1: by the way i don't know if you've seen the the i think you have seen the packaging actually um my photography partner chris schmidt and i recreated uh that back photo of rick uh from the album working class dog and we matched it took us like a week to match up all the lighting uh, so it looked exactly the same so for those of you that uh want to see something really cool it's you look at those two photos, forty years apart. I mean, he still looks amazing, of course. Oh, it's, it's but uh, it's a loving it a tribute to that record,
0: absolutely. And and it's, I mean, that's the greatest thing too about when you're when you do these kind of you know anniversaries or, or things like that. You you get a chance to to put so much care into it, and
1: this yeah. this package is
0: that, which is absolutely It's a lot rewarding.
1: of fun. Um, loved being involved in that. And before we hit record, and, and this is so typical of you and me, like we've been talking for almost an hour yeah, <laughs> before we before, hit record. <laughs> and again, not unusual for Mike and I when we get together because we get so excited about music. And one of the uh, things we were talking about is a song that came out Friday uh, from a, a band called Young Gun Silver Fox. And uh it's from an upcoming uh album, uh, this first track. And it is well let's just let's, cue we'll, a little let's bit just play a little bit of it.
0: A fly. Yeah, he's the oh, to cry. What a what a cool song! And as we were saying, it's such a nod and and a um, uh, you know, it, it, there's something so '70s about it. Not only in the in the production, yeah. but also in the in the harmonic choices of the, of the song. It's just got great, great sounds and great parts and. And, you know, it reminds me so much of something like Silk Sonic, you know, which, which is, it's such a loving, Is that word again, we're talking about loving tributes, yeah. but, but that's, that's a, an acknowledgement of a, of a different era and yeah. it, it, it takes you back. And you
1: mentioned, um, Pablo Cruz, uh, when I was in high school, I got to see Pablo Cruz live and they were so good. Live. Yes. And that, this, and, and this you track know, I talk about this for sure. Yeah. It's, it's definitely got that vibe, not only in the instrumentation, like you mentioned, but. Just, um, these are very good musicians. They're not relying, relying on auto tune or, you know, somebody else's loops and beats and things like that. I mean, it, it comes back to those bands that we love, like Steely Dan and Toto and some of these that at the time we maybe didn't know how brilliant they were as musicians. We just thought the songs were cool. And another track that's coming from Young Gun Silver Fox, um, is, uh, um, it's, it sounds like earth, wind, and fire. It's got all these great horns and things, but we won't get too far ahead on that. Just... Um this uh, Young Gun Silver Fox um, West Side Jet just came out this last Friday. So check it out on your yeah, streaming service. It, great of stuff.
0: Great stuff. And, and Jay and I will always continue to talk about music on our, before we even start mm-hmm. recording. So, by the way, and Jay, Jay Gilbert, as you may know, is the co founder of music marketing and strategy company Label Logic. He is the curator of the Your Morning Coffee newsletter. And of course, a former executive with Universal Music, Sony Music, and Warner Music. And don't forget, Fox Home Entertainment.
1: He was there doing the do. Thank you, brother. And uh, Mike Etchart sitting here, my uh, co-host and good friend, is a a longtime host of Sound & Vision Radio, formerly of SST Records. Got to check out that book that's coming out. Warner Music, capital EMI, and Universal Music. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And uh, we have so much
0: fun talking about all the great stories that Jay puts together for his newsletter. And then we just fall into the rabbit hole of bands we've been listening to and and (laughs) then but now we're talking and by the way we should talk about our sponsors jay because they certainly help us do the boogie every week Yes, sir. Including HypeBot. Since 2004, HypeBot has chronicled the new music industry and the trends and technologies that are changing how music is discovered, consumed, marketed, and monetized. It is edited daily by founder Bruce Houghton with help from Alana Bonilla, HypeBot, and sister blog Music Think Tank are published by Live Music Discovery and marketing platform Bands in Town. Yes,
1: sir. Speaking of bands in town, over 65 million live music fans trust Bands in Town to get personalized concert alerts, recommendations, and messages from their favorite artists. It's the number one artist services platform connecting over 550,000 artists with their superfans, managers, labels, agencies, and artists. You know, they access their own dashboard and help manage and promote tour dates across all platforms. Um, also, um, sign up for the new Bands in Town Artist Community, and these these, uh, Bands in Town Artist Communities are really cool. Um, We have one with Music Biz uh, Weekly uh, podcast. Just go to community.artist.bandsintown.com. Yes, indeed. So, big thanks to Hype Bands in Town, and
0: yes, 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 yes. So, Jay, let's. What do you say we jump in? I mean, there's just like Ooh, some amazing lots of, stuff to chat about. We'll start with the... Well, I
1: told you earlier, okay. you know, it's, it's an embarrassment of riches yes. because there were so many stories in your morning coffee this week that you and I wanted to talk about, but honestly, it would take hours and hours. Um, so definitely don't miss this uh, this last Friday's newsletter. Um, so many great, uh, great pieces, and set set aside some time because there's so much stuff that's just. I
0: mean, it was really hard. To, it wasn't hard to choose these because these are great stories, but it it was hard not to add more to these. So yeah. they are. Just yeah, I great
1: highly story. recommend um, people check out a couple of these stories. Uh, one is. Um, they talk about, this is from venture. Um, my friend, uh, Dustin Boyer sent this over. Um, the headline is work smarter, not harder on your social media content. And it's a really, really great piece. There's a shout out in here to our friend, um, uh, Tracy Chan, who, uh, you know, he helped build Spotify for artists and he ran the music at Twitch. That's where you mm-hmm. and I talked about him a lot. And now he's moved over, uh, to SoundCloud and there's a piece about that, and one other one I wanted to mention, just honorable mention, I, I would have loved to have dug into this, but it would have taken us, you know, another hour, is um, Variety has this amazing podcast, uh, Strictly Business, and it covers film, TV, music, all sorts of things. Shirley Halbert. And I love it when, yeah, Shirley's, um, I always listen to, I, I seek out hers because she's so good. But this one is from uh, this Drop the Mic panel Um it was, I think it's called, uh, drop the mic, the business of music. It was from the Milken Institute, this global conference in Beverly Hills. Anyway, it, you got to check out the, the podcast because it's such a great discussion about a lot of the things that we talk about, you know, on this, on this podcast too. So the last thing I'll mention just really quickly is, um, Spotify released their culture next report. This is an annual report and it's phenomenal. Um, so don't miss that. Do
0: one. not miss that one. But let's let's jump into the the this story yes. from our yes. friends over at Music Business Worldwide. Tim Ingham, of course. Mm-hmm. Lovely picture of our mutual friend Sir Lucian Grange. So yes. this is an article <laughs> on uh, this is Goldman Sachs saying this: the global music industry is going to be worth even more than we thought. And boy, yeah. we're talking about pretty substantial numbers that starts with how much is the global music industry going to be worth in 2030? and it is a question that Goldman Sachs attempts to answer each year via an update via an update to its highly influential music in the air report penned by yeah. respected uh, Glo- Goldman Sachs analyst Lisa Yang alongside her colleagues it is a gigantic uh it's like 62 pages so we're not going to of course cover all that but it talks about again these the, the crazy amount of numbers and so they the Goldman Sachs keeps they they are always adjusting it right so this is kind of a yeah. This is an updated thing. So, as they say, might Goldman reduce its forecast of music industry revenues over the next few years? Could current macroeconomic headwinds push down Goldman's future projections for the value of prime music catalogs? Nah, it's going nah. up, Jay. It is going up. No,
1: it's going up. And and just so to put this in a little context, a lot of people in the music industry kind of rely on Goldman Sachs um, for their forecasts for the next 10 years or so in where they believe um, the music business is going, uh, especially streaming. And there's a link in your Morning Coffee to um, this webpage where they go through and... Show you some really cool charts and graphs on where they feel like, for example, streaming subscriptions, uh, Spotify versus Apple Music, you know, where it's been since 2011 till now. And, you know, they're making these projections. And the reason that's important is sometimes uh, people will use this as one of the sources for evaluating a music catalog that they're going to or a company that deals in music. So the fact that they're increasing this is, it's sort of surprising uh, to some people. And the one thing that sort of jumped out at me really first, or (laughs) jumped out at me first, that I thought was really interesting was, if you look at kind of worldwide streaming, you know, in two buckets, uh, paid, and then ad supported. In 2021, it was, you know, mostly, you know, like 73% paid and 27% ad supported globally. They feel like, Going forward, that's going to be decreasing on the paid side mm-hmm. and more on the ad-supported side. I thought that was really interesting. Me they too. They think it's going to move to sixty-two percent paid and thirty-seven percent ad-supported.
0: Yeah, but you know, one of the things—if this isn't a, a a sort of a testament to the changing face of the music industry—I don't know what is. Because as as we we always are talking about the acquisition of catalogs and all of that stuff. It, but it's there's so many new players in the music space. You know, they're they're investment folks, and this is these sort of forecasts are so, as you said, so important to. The new music business which is these you know the this sector that is doing all these acquisitions and so yeah. you're right and it certainly if, if you're in if you're investing in these acquisitions this is fantastic news so it yeah it, it, it it's it's validating what a lot of people have been saying and it, you know we're right. not there yet we're not at 2030 yet but if we you know yeah. it, it's, it's painting a, a good picture so far without a doubt
1: and these are smart people that do their research and you know if you work for let's say Say, Hypnosis or BMG or KKR or one of those companies. This is one of many things that you look at to evaluate businesses, but it's an important one. They they stayed in this uh, in this piece. And by the way, Tim Ingham is you know one of my all time favorites. I know I say that a lot on this podcast, but I I love his podcast, and I love the way he writes. Um, it's just absolutely flawless. Anyway, he, he says that Goldman Sachs now believes that annual global trade revenues. Uh, you know, through the recorded uh, music industry, labels, distributors, artists, they're going to grow by $53.2 billion U S dollars um, by 2030. That's up seven and a half billion from their prior, you know, most recent projections. It's also more than double the size of worldwide record business revenues last year, which was almost 26 billion. Right. uh, Reported by the IFPI. That's amazing. Yes, it is. And, and, 2030 is not that far off. I mean, when
0: i when I started reading that, I'm like, 2030, that's a lot. And then like, wait a minute, it's 2022 right now. So we yeah. are talking about, you know, just in the next seven, eight years. And that is a an unbelievable. And they say that this increase in its projection is largely down to higher paid streaming ARPU and ad-funded streaming, ad streaming assumptions, as well as lower declines in physical sales. Now, the, the lower decline in physical sales was kind of surprising, given how much we talk about. Well,
1: they talk about the value of vinyl. Yes. It's a premium product, mm-hmm. so it generates more revenue, and as that increases, but... Uh, T- tell our listeners what ARPU is. I know we talk about this a lot, but I, I always want people to understand when we drop that. Of course, a- that'd be, acronym. that our
0: our favorite acronym. Uh, it's average revenue per user, right? And so, yeah. and it's it's the number that everybody is looking at, and um and it's a funny name, and it's a great
1: name to name an animal <laughs> if you have a dog or a cat or something. That'd be great to have a dog or a cat named ARPU. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. You know, they talk about publishing. Yes. And that it's not just recorded. You know, they moved up their forecast on global music publishing. You know, previously Goldman Sachs suggested that annual trade revenue in the publishing world would reach $10.6 billion in 2030. But now they bump bumped that up a full billion dollars to $11.6 billion. And they say that the rise in the forecast is down to higher projected streaming, physical and performance revenues. I thought that was interesting too. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And then uh, as the article says elsewhere Goldman now suggests that global music streaming revenues on a retail gross basis will hit check this out, 89.3 billion in 2030. With paid wow. streaming con- contributing fifty five point six billion of that figure, and ad funded streaming contributing thirty three point seven
1: billion dollars. Boy, that's I mean, that's very encouraging. Yeah. And they go on to say it's not just streaming; it's not just publishing. The live music side, you know, global ticketing and spon- sponsorship sales. That's easy for you to say uh, for twenty thirty. They they think that those will stay. You know, fairly close to where they are, which is right around thirty-eight point three billion dollars. Yeah, but uh, again, these numbers are just really
0: unbelievable. When when you know we did, and I just think back to the to the to the dark era, you know, when it was just remember when the, the the kind of the transition from the old to the new and how and we've talked about this a number of times. You know how the big the big parent companies, like in our case, we both worked for for Universal Music. When it was part of Universal Studios, and then when it wasn't, and I worked for I worked for uh, Warner Music Group pre Warner Brothers getting rid of them. You were there after that, and these com- these big companies couldn't wait to get rid of their music companies. And yet now yeah. you're looking at these numbers, and who would have who yeah. would have seen who would have forecasted this back That's in right. 2004 or five? It's remarkable. Yeah.
1: That's right. And one of the things they talk about in here is something you and I have been talking a lot about recently, and that is the potential price increases at DSPs. So they said that you know Goldman Sachs has increased their ARPU, and again, average revenue per user. Mm-hmm. They've increased their ARPU projections partly thanks to stabilizing the ARPU decline from companies like Spotify in 2021, but partly because of potential future price rises at music streaming platforms. Mm -hmm. And there've been a lot of stories lately, and we've covered them in your morning coffee about, is this going to happen and what will happen if it does happen? And I read this piece where this one analyst was saying that he thought that that would adversely affect, um, these streaming places, you know, like Spotify and Apple music. But then I read another piece with the exact opposite because they used in something that you use sometimes that Netflix model of, well, These places or platforms will change their pricing and not necessarily lose subscribers because of it. Um, Can the DSPs like Spotify, Pandora, Deezer, Amazon Music, can they raise prices and still retain their customers? I think yes. I think, and they pointed out in this piece, that the music industry is this is one of the only industries that's really overperforming and undervalued yes absolutely and they said you know we, we uh it's a
0: they they previously believed that in 2030 annual music subscri- subscriber arpu globally would be at $42.8 per year they've now moved that up to $45.8 per year but as they say a $3 annual increase might not sound like a lot but remember this is across the projected 1.26 billion paying music streaming yeah. subs globally so wow yeah. yeah exactly and as you like to say often you know suddenly we're talking about real money when you're when you looking exactly at numbers right. like that
1: so it's and the part that we didn't apart. really think about before um, was emerging platforms you know we We weren't really talking that much in the last few years um, about the value to the music industry that Facebook, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram Reels, you know, video games and even, you know, podcasts, um, those emerging platforms, they believe, are going to account for 40 percent of global recorded music industry ad funded revenues uh, by 2030 and 12% of the total global recorded music revenue. And that's up, you know, 5%, which again, it's these, some of these numbers may sound small, but that's 5% of a very large pot. And, you know, we, we mentioned that the music industry was sort of under-monetized, and that's what Lisa Yang and her team at Goldman Sachs say, and, I, and I'm quoting them. Our analysis shows that music remains one of the most under-monetized forms of entertainment with spending still forty percent below its historical peak, while consumption continues to grow year after year, and that's that thing that you and I talked about. I think it was last week or the week before that. You know, twenty twenty one was a record year as a dollar figure, but not value yep. because of inflation. Nineteen ninety nine still holds that award. Yeah, but boy, this is
0: this is really great news and very fascinating to see how they got these numbers. And, and I love that they continue to kind of mess with them you know and 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 revise and go back and look at the numbers again so really interesting article and boy just yeah you know check it out and and it's buckle in because if that's if this holds true yeah it's gonna be
1: that's it's gonna that's be encouraging and the last thing, nice thing I'll say decade. on it really quickly is when you get to this piece in the first paragraph there's a link to the music in the air uh, report. Um, by uh, Lisa Yang and her team. And you and I talk about this sometimes, how uh, some of these platforms will make these reports available in such a visual, yeah. visually appealing way. And if you click on that link, this is one of the best websites. It just spells it's everything gorgeous. out simply. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. And uh, they explain um, you know everything that we were just kind of describing, and you can visually see it. Uh, in a historical sense, and they even add some things that aren't in the uh, Music Business Worldwide report. So I highly recommend you uh, clicking on that link and checking out the report.
0: Yeah, and a lot of cool parts, you know, like what's behind the surge, and lots of really interesting sections of that are just really worth pulling down and looking. Again, you got to set aside a fair amount of time to go back and look at the (laughs) newsletter because there's so many amazing articles, and it's... it's a lot of great stuff so all right let's move on to the next one jay from motive unknown this labels are bad and unnecessary narrative is bs it needs to stop wait a minute i've never heard that narrative jay labels are bad and unnecessary who says that come on
1: oh my gosh we read this every single day and Look, he kind of takes a shot here at uh, Ted Mm Joya, who we like and we've covered Ted's stuff before. I don't always agree with everything that he said. You know, he did that uh, video with uh, Rick Beato, Mm -hmm. who you and I are big fans of. And there were some things in there that I took issue with. But all in all, Ted is a, a super smart guy. Um, great experience in the music industry, but before we dig in, this Motive Unknown. Uh, this is their blog. It's called the Motive Unknown Digest, and um, this is written by Darren Hemmings. And I subscribe to their. Uh, they get. I think it goes out three times a week. You can get emails from them, and they they cover the music business and. It's really, really great stuff. It's really kind of focused on the U.K., but, you know, it's a global music industry. Highly recommend checking out uh, Motive Unknown, and kudos to Darren Hemmings and uh, his team. And he, he kind of kicks this off talking about a story that you and I covered um, in your morning coffee, and the headline was, Record Labels Dig Their Own Grave. And the shovel is called TikTok. Mm-hmm. And this was a couple of weeks ago when you and I were talking a lot about Halsey and a lot about people who were saying they were being forced to create fake uh, viral moments. And a lot of that was actually misinformation. Some, In some cases, like Halsey, she was only asked to make six TikTok videos in promotion of a single, which I believe is a reasonable ask. Mm-hmm. But we won't go down that rabbit hole anyway. So, um, Darren starts off this piece by saying that, you know, that there's that headline and Ted Joya, and he says in one of his latest articles, um, on Substack, uh, he says, Joya, if you're not familiar, is an author, a commentator on all things music. He's a very smart man sporting a PPE degree from Oxford. And he says, I've referenced his articles in the past. He is a high profile commentator read by many in this latest piece though. I can't help but feel Ted Joy is guilty of some pretty lazy assertions uh, further perpetuating the labels equals bad narrative that I find to be increasingly toxic. And I will say that uh, when you and I talk about this, we never, ever bash labels. And it's because we come from that ecosystem and we know how many smart, uh, driven, wonderful people are at labels now are there some label people maybe that are a little lazy and just kind of watch trends on tiktok as opposed to being uh, a true a&r rep yeah there are some of those Mm -hmm, sure mm -hmm. but on the whole uh these record companies are not bad they're not ripping people off they're they're having deals now i think that are more fair especially for the indie artist at any time in recorded music history and i i can't I can't agree with Darren Hemings more, not to pick on Ted Joya, you know, he has a right to his opinion, but this kind of, it's easy to pile on and say, oh, well, screw the labels, right. you know, I'm going to do this myself. Um, it's, it's not that simple.
0: It's not. And as we've said many, many times, you know, the, the, what labels are really good at is taking something small and making it bigger. And so I think that's always going to be the case. And that's kind of what Really, what they now do—they not always do that. Of course, you know it's still a—it's—it's it's like baseball. You know, if you, if you hit one in three, you're a superstar, and that's that's kind of like the label business, even probably a little bit less. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. you know, it, it's it, yeah, that that's the problem. But as he says, well, it starts by saying you know the, the the what what Ted's sort of comments was, and he says the author says for me, discourse like this is poisonous and painfully oversimplified. I think what always irritates me about painting labels as the big bad people, aside from the crass generalization, is that two simple facts for to them are overlooked. Division of labor and expertise. And we've talked about this a lot as well. Yes. He said in truth, this isn't about the label about labels as we traditionally know them. A label could just as easily be a team assembled by a manager after he and she has secured suitable financing, backing from somewhere. Another angle to labels that Joya likes to ignore, the financial capital labels provide. And again, that is super is.
1: important. And well, it- you just touched on three things, mm-hmm. right? You touched on division of labor. Now think about that. If you've got a dedicated global team of, you know, marketers, uh, people with relationships with the DSPs, problem solvers, you know, PR, sync teams, all of those things. That division of labor is these are highly trained, highly skilled uh, people that have expertise. Right, and I think that's some sometimes um, ignored, as he points out here. But another part of it is let's let's look at the other side of it. Can you do it on your own yes. today? Sure, um, people do it. I was telling you earlier that this last week I had the uh, immense pleasure of talking with Ani DeFranco uh, for the yes. Behind the Setlist podcast. Uh, Glenn Peoples and I had a, an amazing a uh, conversation with her while her dog Lefty slept in the background <laughs> quietly. Um, and she's a poster child for someone who said, you know what, I'm going to do this myself yeah. with her Righteous Babe records and being independent from the start. And she's been offered all sorts of label deals. And, you know, we covered this piece last week, um, that video uh, about TikTok. And one of the things they talked about was that labels cut big checks. And for the right artist, not for every artist, Look, Ani can go her route and be very successful, and you can too. It's a lot of hard work. It um, but labels perform a function, and if you become a priority for a label, I've seen it. They can move mountains.
0: Yes, absolutely. But as this, as this article kind of points out, can you do it yourself? Yes, you can do it yourself. But it's a huge undertaking, which will soak up so much time that your art, the actual commodity powering your trade here— will quite likely suffer. Can you do it? Yes. Should you do it? If you're hitting a point of serious success, I'd emphatically argue the answer is hell no. And again, we've talked about this a bunch, which is, you know, we expect artists to do so much now besides writing music that just makes you cry.
1: Well, let's talk about some of those things. You just brought up a great point. Let's talk about some of the things that an artist has to do today. Yes. You've got to write, you know, you you have to write compelling music and a lot of it.
0: And that's, you know, we've talked about, you and I have played in bands with so many different people over the years and they're at, at the risk of generalization, <laughs> but generally speaking, a lot of musicians are flakes, and they're they're good at a couple of things, and <laughs> and some of them though are not organization. It's certainly not marketing. Right. Sometimes and understanding contracts and understanding the 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 platforms with which you're uploading content to. It's like you know you're asking kind of it's just asking wow. so much of artists. It really is, and so right you know. And again, that's where yeah. a label can step in or a team. Again, I, I think the great one of the greatest things about this article is he mentions that it it. You're really talking about teams. We're talking about labels, label teams, but you can create your own team as well. And management, manage, managers do it, and and lots of other folks do it. But you, it's just really too much to ask of most artists, right?
1: And self servingly, you know, that's what I do for a Absolutely. living. Absolutely, know, my, my company puts together a team for brands and for uh, some even smaller labels and for management where we take on some of those roles and responsibilities, but you need to have uh, a budget uh, to put uh, a company like ours on retainer to do what it does. And there are a lot of developing artists that simply aren't to that point, but that, that division of labor that you're talking about um, as he points out in this article, that that exists as a concept for a very good reason. You find others to take these roles on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, you know, TikTok, Twitch, whatever it is, and the net gain is greater than if you tried to do it all yourself. Ideally, those roles should be experts in their field, too, too, uh, furthering, empowering your operation to succeed. And I think if you surround yourself with very talented people and everybody's on the same page, really great things can happen. My only concern for folks that do it on their own sometimes is there can be mental health implications to trying to take on way too much. And you and I both know you said some musicians are flakes, and that's true. But I also noticed that musicians in general, um, you can't paint everybody with a broad stroke, but they're, you know, what Alice Cooper calls the fragile elite. Mm-hmm. You know, they are very emotional. They're very in tune with their art. They're fragile in some way, shape, or form. And that's why sometimes substance abuse pops up. Sometimes people snap. It's, it's really challenging when you put all this stuff on their plate. But that's another reason why um, it helps to have a great team around you. And that's typically... Uh, a label and last week we talked about a billboard piece with you know adam abramson and some of these great marketers who are evolving and changing with the times but they're doing a lot of this work so their artists don't have to and you get a good label like atlantic behind you or you know none such behind you or righteous babe or whatever it is new west sub pop you i could go on for hours there are a lot of great labels out there if if they get behind you, they use their relationships to help build your career. And let's not forget, a lot of what artists need is problem solving mm-hmm. and things go wrong. And these labels are very good at knowing how to solve problems quickly. Yes.
0: Now, I will say that I've noticed, and I think, you, you, we, I think we've talked about this as well, I certainly noticed it in the publishing arena as well, that I think there's this kind of trend where labels, book publishers, lots of sort of content content companies will release lots of things at once to kind of see what sticks. And I think there's, there's been a trend lately of, of that. And, and then when they see what kind of is, is clicking, then they'll, they'll focus and, and divert a a lot more money and strategies and attention to that product. So that's, that's happening. I want to, at least I'm noticing it. I want to mention that as well, but, but still, I think, you know, uh, it's again it's it's about a team and labels provide that and they've been doing this for for decades and and while the landscape yeah. has shifted they are very in tune with what's going on and when when they're working they're working hard on your behalf and i, I, That's I do right. agree with him it's not yeah it's not this sort of boogeyman sort of negativity that that it that it it's painted out to be by many in 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 the music industry right and i
1: think that what draws the ire of you know Rick Beato and Ted Joya at least recently, was the story around TikTok and the perception that labels were pressuring um, artists to do fake things, to uh, basically... do the job of the record company marketing uh, team and that they were maybe getting a bit lazy in their A&R signing artists that had never played a live show, mm-hmm. that some of them only had 15 seconds of certain songs that then they would quickly go in and make a song out of, and they just were not prepared like the artists of the past who, let's take Guns N' Roses, for example, they they tore their asses off. They played so many live shows before they got signed They were, um, their live show was down. And when they went in the studio to record and when they started playing live, uh, they hit the ground running. And there's still that going on, but there's also a lot of these, you know, TikTok artists. uh, And I think that that was kind of what the gripe was, um, was surrounding that. But that's such a small piece Yes, there are a lot of people watching TikTok um, to see what's popping and, and seeing if they can get some streams out of it. But remember, it's, it comes down to the way w- the music industry pays on streaming. Mm-hmm. It's paid on this pro rata or this big pool model where you need to get market share because that could mean a lot of extra revenue for your label if you're getting that market share. Um, versus the user centric model that we talk about where you're paid exactly on what uh, your listeners are uh, listening to. So that's, that's really challenging. But I love this piece um, in uh, Motive Unknown. And if you want to subscribe to their digest, it goes out every Monday, Wednesday and Friday. And like I mentioned, pr- predominantly in the UK, but also in US and Europe, um, it's pretty popular, and it's kind of one of my go-to sources. Uh, I just love the way that they take a look at music news each week. Yeah,
0: and I and I appreciate the perspective. That's like music business worldwide. It's it's you know we're we're such a big country here in the states. It's I really like getting the sort of worldview that that some of these uh, outlets provide, which is which is yeah. very valuable for sure. Yeah, let's absolutely. let's let's do our last one, Jay, from Tedium, gaming the Billboard charts, and it's it's you know I I would uh, what, what kind of got me interested in the article is it, it starts by talking about Casey Kasem, and I was last weekend I went up to a wedding up in Northern California and I was driving around and you know I nothing is more fun than listening to different radio stations, you know, when you're in a new city and there I was listening to the American top 40. It was, it was a, it was a, a a re-record of course, because Casey Kasem died, what, 10 years ago. He's been gone for quite a while now. Um, and it was a, it was a re just a replay of one of his, you know, top 40 shows from 1986. And it's, it's, I'm like wow. I'm kind of driving around. I'm like, wow, that's these things are being and I and we have Sirius in one of our cars, Sirius XM, and you know you you can listen to the Tom Petty uh, station and there's Tom as if he's still living. And it's you're talking yeah. about some of these eternal artists and and they're they're we still listen to them even though they've been gone. In the case of Casey Kasem for a long time, but anyway, so it starts by talking about yeah. Casey Kasem and and kind of the what that did to billboard as a magazine in terms of just getting the general public understanding oh, it what changed Hitler everything was. It changed everything. And then kind of the idea about charts and how important charts are. And it really was started with his American top 40 show that started in 1970. Yeah. And I remember listening to it as a kid and loving it.
1: Yeah. And oh, yeah.
0: so this, this, this kind of setting the stage is, is basically how prior to his show, The general public had no idea even what Billboard magazine was, and why would they? It was a trade publication. Right. And so this really kind of started the notion about charts and and having the public understand charts, but also, I mean, this is the music business, how to start messing with the charts and how to start getting a little traction and and how to not manipulate necessarily, but maximize Tra- yeah. charts, where your
1: artists are on the charts. Yeah. Casey Kasem brought the Billboard charts to the masses. I, I learned about the Billboard charts and how important they were from Casey Kasem. And I would listen to that show. And it, this is like a three-hour show. And what I loved about it was he would tell all these stories. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, about the artists, and you learn so much because there wasn't the World Wide Web, and you couldn't just Google something, and I learned a lot about the artists from Casey Kasem. But they, they point out in this piece, which I thought was really interesting, if you take out all the songs and commercials from that three-hour program, <laughs> it's just 20 minutes long. Yes,
0: it's, and it's interesting to note in this uh, in this particular episode how his even his show changed, but how Billboard has kind of managed to when when record labels and things kind of take advantage of of the way the charts are are running they make changes along the way as well and i hadn't really thought about that so it's it's a really yeah. interesting article just from a, a strategic point for you know and how there's just kind of a a back and forth between labels and billboard and the adjustments to make to make the in their
1: view the the charts more fair right and when they talk about gaming some of these things are pretty innocent, the way they try to do things to, um, well, you know, boost numbers. It, they're not necessarily nefarious, you know, some of these things that we'll talk about in a second, like bundling things to yes. purchases. So you buy a ticket to a show, and you also get the album, and then that counts as a a sale. Um, but just jumping back to Casey Kasem, just for a, a second, and then we can move on, um, they, they talked about how uh, Casey Kasem kind of, it was the first chart really that featured Ohio by Crosby, Stills, and Nash mm-hmm. and Young. Um, and that it was, I think, at number 30, you know, despite the fact that a lot of AM stations weren't playing the song you know, for political reasons. You know, It was about the National Guard shootings at Kent State. And in introducing the song... Casey Kasem didn't sugarcoat it, you know. Instead, he highlighted the vocal quartet's pedigree and the fact that such a message was not out of character for the group. "Quote: Those are heavy credentials, and you expect heavy stuff from them, right?" And then Billboard writer Rich Appel said that was one of the things American Top 40 did. They wanted to just play the top 40 songs regardless of what mainstream radio was doing. So, so many people would listen to that program and hear music that they actually weren't even hearing on the radio. Right. And it really launched a, a lot of careers.
0: And I remember and, listening, hearing, again, thinking that at the time, listening to a song that I'd never heard. It's like, it's, it's top 40 in the U.S. Why isn't my local station playing it? And... I didn't know the answer to that, but that was certainly the case, that a lot of stations, for whatever reason, didn't play a lot of the songs that were literally in the top 40. Yeah,
1: yeah. They, it We'll get into, in the last part of this article, there's some some things, some ways that they're, you know, quote-unquote gaming the system, and, and that's, that's the best part. But I did want to touch on this catalog thing because I thought this was really interesting because we talk a lot about catalog, you and I, you know, because people are acquiring catalogs and selling catalogs. And you know, it says the number of albums that were listed on the pop catalog album chart during its first appearance, that was in 1991, that are still on the same chart this week. And you know, Kate Bush's, uh, you know, she's back on this week, of course, we've heard all about that. But apparently, despite the fact that ACDC's Back in Black is continuously sold during that entire period, people are still buying it at a regular clip back in black has been on the pop catalog charts for at least 1123 weeks over the past 31 years which means 21 full years of the past 31 years have featured DC's work, that album you know somewhere in the chart but compare that to Bob Marley's legend you know which has appeared over 1520 weeks. Journey's Greatest Hits, 1,355 Weeks, Uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival's Chronicle, uh, 20 Greatest Hits. ACDC has been slacking compared to some of these other albums that have been on so long. They mentioned that other catalog albums frequently appear on the chart, like Metallica's... Uh, self-titled 1991 album, uh, the Beatles won, Bob Seger's Greatest Hits, etc. I mean, catalog is still a majority of the business. It's it's still a beast. But with all of these charts, you might lose sight of what is actually being consumed. Right, exactly. And that's, you know,
0: the, the catalog numbers are just so dramatic when you think about the the amount of time those have been on the charts. and. And I will point out, too, you know, when you talk about ours development, we've talked about this, you know, uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, which, of course, is on these same catalog charts. That was their, I believe it was their seventh album. And, you know, so and they were they were they were as a semi-successful band but nothing to these heights you know i think now a band would never have gotten to that seventh album with with no the numbers way. of the first pink pink floyd albums but i don't think labels stuck with it in those days and and yeah and, and we have these some of these kind of gigantic hits so anyway but as, as we kind of move forward you're, you're talking about again how how the the the, the charts have kind of moved and and been massaged over the years, and kind of how they've, how labels have taken advantage of the the way the the charts are structured, and yeah. and then how how Billboard were kind of then maybe sort of re revisit why they're how they kind of set it up, and I, some of the stuff I never really had thought about. I don't know about you, but you know we would when I was in labels, I would just get Billboard and look at the numbers and like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah. You know, we're we're right. number 13 this month or whatever it is or this week.
1: Right. And and that was a big deal, right? Yes. But we didn't know some of these rules. I mean, I had heard some of these rules and some of them I know, some of them I actually didn't. They talk about one in the mid to late 90s where, you know, rock bands or more likely their labels decided not to even bother releasing physical singles. I would forgotten about this. Instead of just letting their songs chart, you know, where they were, you know, um, the modern rock tracks chart put no weight on the physical single. This of course worked out great for labels, which wanted to sell people a full album and not the track billboard required singles to have corresponding, uh, physical sales to appear on the hot 100. So there were all these different rules about, uh, releasing music and what charts they would appear on. Right.
0: And so they, they, they kind of have a list of, of sort of five ways of, that artists and labels have successfully gamed the Billboard charts. And it's not, game sounds a little bit more nefarious than I think yeah. it really is. So that let's just well, say... So have, take that with
1: a grain of salt. Yeah, they
0: right? have taken advantage of it. And one of the things they mentioned is the January sleeper hit in the early 2010s. An odd phenomenon kept happening at the beginning of the year. Artists with cult followings were topping the Billboard 200 with extremely low numbers of sales. And remember, you know, one of the things you and I have talked about often is how it's how one of the biggest changes of of our business now is it's it's the lack of of uh, reliance on needing that that fourth quarter smash hit when you stack up everything. But here people were taking advantage of that scenario by waiting till January. And they they mention in this... Amos Lee, who's a great artist and one of a very uh, an artist who I play a lot and dig, um, yeah. he had a record called Mission Bell. It was a chart topping album that just sold 40,000 copies in its first week of January in 2011. An impressive number for him, who never got that high. Yeah. But at the time, just kind of that wasn't very impressive at all. But a couple of weeks before that, Cake had done the same thing with their first album in seven years. They sold 4,000 more units than Amos Lee did. But again, they. People taking advantage just of timing, and you didn't need to sell a lot for a January release to be at the smart. top of the
1: charts. I'm, I think that's smart, actually. Yeah, I don't Look, think it's gaming you know, the they, system. Exactly, and you you pointed that out. It's that's not really gaming the system, but it's being smart about that release cycle and when you release it. So that was the you know the number one thing. Number two. And I remember this very well, the iTunes effect, right? In 2005, Billboard changed its rules for single sales to allow digital downloads to count for the chart. And one of the biggest beneficiaries was a solo artist who, as a member of an alt-rock band, missed a chance to top the pop charts for a couple of months in a row because of Billboard's quote-unquote dumb rules. And that's Gwen Stefani's Hollaback Girl, released two months after changes to the digital download rules, was catapulted to further success thanks to the users who were buying the single on iTunes and Mass. Quote, in the early months of the digital-powered Hot 100, no song benefited more from the new formula than Stefani's Bananas Anthem. And that was written by uh, Chris Malomfanyi. I spelled it right, Malanfi, sorry, Chris, um, from the Village Voice. And I thought that was really interesting, that that new rule allowing downloads. Yeah,
0: exactly. And I remember that, too. It's funny. It, it, as I was reading, I, I also remembered that very clearly. Uh, uh, number three was the sales-only Hot 100 appearance. By the mid-'90s, bands such as Nine Inch Nails and Pearl Jam were established enough that they could release physical CD singles that would sell well enough in record stores that they would chart on the Hot 100 with a song or short EP clearly targeted towards their existing fan bases, without a smidgen. Of pop radio play, their fans weren't just listeners; they were collectors, which is why Nine Inch Nails' "The Day the World Went Away," a particularly pop unfriendly song, was very briefly a top twenty hit in early ninety nine. As well as why Pearl Jam's uh, Merkin Ball," a two song EP intended as a companion to the Neil Young's Pearl Jam uh, featured album "Mirrorball," as the as the band's second highest chart appearance on the Hot one hundred. Again, wow. it, and you know, did Nine Inch Nails and Pearl Jam? as bands know about all of this or was these the labels taking advantage of just the the situation and and releasing i don't i don't know that but it yeah. worked
1: whatever you know smart yeah look it's just smart number four is and you were talking about um pearl jam a second ago um number four the live album saturation strategy it says speaking of pearl jam The band came across one of the most brilliant chart stunts in modern history in 2000. It started releasing a series of quote-unquote official bootlegs, which aimed to provide a better experience to fans than poorly recorded stuff you know, from the crowds. The band released 72 separate albums over a two-year period in what can literally be called flood-the-market strategy. The result of this trick, due to Pearl Jam being one of the biggest bands in the world at the time, was that the band managed to chart 14 <laughs> albums in a single week, <laughs> which is a lot. You know, it's good to throw a wrench in the way of the recording industry is run and do something different, their bass player, Jeff uh, Ament, said. That's- he- Yeah, and I
0: remember vaguely that, but I don't remember it was 72 (laughs) albums over a two-year period. I was like, wow, I don't remember that. I didn't either. That's crazy. And then number five is the chorus-only YouTube video. And it says, no matter what your opinion of Rebecca Black's Friday or size Gangnam Style, you must argue you must argue that the YouTube-driven songs played a key role in the Internet's growing influence on the Billboard Hot 100, even if they themselves never topped the charts in the U.S., which I found stunning, actually, which is why it makes sense that in February of 2013, the magazine announced it was adding YouTube streams to its mix, which seemed to directly influence the Hot 100 success of Harlem Shake, a song that generally wasn't even played with a primary music video. The problem the rules were loosey-goosey, enough so that in 2017, Post Malone gained chart mojo from a version of his single Rockstar that was effectively a three-and-a-half-minute-long loop of the chorus. <laughs> it was a brilliant move, but this was too far for Billboard, which adjusted the YouTube method- methodology in 2017. So yeah, it's, you know, again, it, it's... It's massaging, it's working, you know, and I get it from Billboard, you know, you you, yeah. you adjust for the technology, of course, but then that kind of makes funny little ways that you can, again, they call it's it a, gaming, but you can, you could just take
1: advantage of the system. I yeah. Suppose. Well, if you call it a game, I, I call it cat and mouse because yes. of what you just described. Things change, technologies change. You know, they talk about YouTube videos, they talk about streaming, you know, in this, they talk a little bit about bundles yes. and that... That was a big thing for a while is bundling certain things, whether it was merch or tickets to a live show um, to, you know, uh, get more of those sales. And of course, you know, they had to change those rules. You know, an album can't be included in the price of a ticket or shirt anymore. Um, but is an opt-in add-on, you know, that has to be made clear to to buyers. So this is all super interesting stuff. And I think that it'll be interesting to see what... New technology brings and ways that people either I you know I don't like maybe using the term gaming the system and a lot of this is just being smart about the system and using it to your advantage.
0: Yes, and that's listen that is everybody's job if you're if you when you're marketing music and it's it's a feather in your cap when you say you know this artist is is at number one in Billboard or whatever top ten or you know it's these are all things that you use on the marketing angles and standpoint to. To promote your artist, so why wouldn't you do whatever you can do without truly kind of breaking the rules? Um, Yeah, and And there was an
1: article in your morning coffee last week about how people use iTunes, not Apple Music. Mm -hmm. iTunes, the download charts now, to kind of brag: Hey, we have a number one album at iTunes, and you know, certain adult albums uh, typically will do that, and it it's a lower bar. Uh, to hit that number one than maybe it used to be, you know, from back in the download era. But I also see people doing things like, you know, another great chart is Amazon's movers and shakers, mm-hmm. which is on a, on a 24-hour kind of rolling basis of, and, and that's as a percentage. So if you go from 100 units a week to, you know, 1,000 units a week, you could be in, you know, maybe in the top five of that, of that chart. But people love charts, and there's more charts now than yes. ever before. And you look through Billboard, which I do, and it's it's amazing at all of the different charts. And you can I think you can go on Luminate and see all those different charts as well. And it's there's a chart for everyone, right? And you're <laughs> right. It does, it looks really good in print to say, hey, we're number one and way to go. And here's a plaque and you know, a high five and that sort of thing. But it is really fun to kind of look at the way that uh, the sausage is made, and how people kind of manipulate that a little bit. Yeah, and uh, but
0: that again, that's your job, you know, to to do what, to, to get your thing marketed and out to the people, and yeah. So it it is, in many ways, you got to tip your hat to the the, the creative ways of yes, which people well played sir uh, yes well, well played, played sir that's 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 <laughs> the best way of saying it so and on that note jay we we're gonna call it a day it is uh so fun to always chat Aww. about these wonderful articles and again this this week's uh newsletter was just action-packed Nutty. you gotta yeah. folks go back and, and check it out check it out again because there's so many amazing articles and if only we could ta- talk about all of them, but just not enough hours in the day. So That's right. Uh, we do, of course, want to thank our wonderful sponsors, HypeBot and Bands in Town, for helping us to, to make it happen. And we certainly appreciate it. And we are marching towards 100, Jay. We got another three to go, 98, 99, and then the 100th. So very exciting. And we sure appreciate yeah. everyone listening in to so the cool. show. Absolutely. So happy Father's Day, Jay. We're recording on the Saturday before you too, Father's brother. Day. So. too, uh, If uh, anyone listening that was a father, hopefully your father's day was excellent. And uh, we appreciate you listening in and we'll see you next week on the Your Morning Coffee podcast.
1: You've been listening to Your Morning Coffee, the weekly music news program for the new music business. Join Jay Gilbert and Mike Etchard next time for the digital music news you need to know.